Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. Neil will be back next week. I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California. Uh, This show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Neil thanks you. I thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly by selecting the Donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, today we are going to be discussing two unlawful detainer appellate opinions one from 2013 and the other one more recently from the end of 2016. Now, the 2016 one is definitely published, so that's a good thing, obviously, for our side, for for the borrowers, for those who end up in the foreclosure situation where their home goes to auction and whether or not they have a plaintiff's lawsuit going here in California, they are still subject to an unlawful detainer proceeding. So the first case that I will be discussing is short title Bank of New York Mellon versus Preciado. And again, this was an appeal that was decided back in 2013 Specifically, it was decided in August 2013. So at the lower court uh, level, this case was a bit of a mess. Uh, It was in the San Jose area, but it was not in San Jose. And at one point, there was a sheriff's eviction, which didn't come out of the, uh, the right sheriff's substation. So that had to be essentially put aside. And there was a, uh, a motion to stay the eviction at, at some point introduced after judgment. And surprisingly, it was granted. 
I don't know, and I'm not intimately familiar with the uh, lower court record. However, there there may have been, and it would not surprise me if there there were compelling reasons for staying the eviction. It looked like it was stayed uh, for about a month or so, and that did provide some critical time. The uh, appeal was filed. Uh, the, the appeal did go forward. Some months later, uh, there was a favorable decision, and the lower court ruling was reversed. Uh, it looks like, practically speaking, there was a stay of sorts in place here beyond the 30 days. I'm not sure about that, though. In any case, uh, what is what is absolutely the case here is that the uh, the ultimate opinion went for the defendants who were those who were foreclosed on. Now, one of the important uh, takeaways from this case uh, relates to the need for perfected title. And we've all heard that term, particularly in connection with these types of UD cases. But it's a term that applies to the foreclosure arena all over the country. It's a term that applies to the foreclosure arena, whether you are discussing either judicial or, as here, non-judicial foreclosure cases. And so what we have here is the court ultimately finds, and again, I'm backing up a little because procedurally, the appellate opinion is a bit of a mess because the lower court record is a bit of a mess. First of all, there are two ongoing appeals that were that were joined in, in, in essence as one appeal because there were two ongoing uh, unlawful detainer cases that both of which resulted in judgments. They really should have been consolidated at some time into one case, and it was really improper. Uh, again, I'm not making a legal declaration here. We don't give legal advice or make legal claims on this show. We do provide uh, some input and insight and information on legal cases, specifically foreclosure cases. But to get back to my point, there there was essentially uh, – a legal finding that this really should have been one one legal legal uh, unlawful detainer lawsuit, and so so it should have been presented as one. And there were a number of defendants, including those who were simply claiming a tenant type status, and that is not uncommon. I'm sure it's not uncommon even nationally, but it's especially not uncommon in California. So what that looks like in an unlawful detainer context is the following. You're the former homeowner. However, you, because you were struggling and the very reason that you end up with your property going to sale, uh, apart from all the illegalities and irregularities that forced that sale on you, you find yourself months or years even from the sale and it's either 
something that supplements your income or in some cases not an incidental number of cases, you really need to bring other people in, in, into your home on a kind of lease rental, even if it's a room, even if it's a couple of rooms, to provide uh, needed income to keep your life afloat. And so that is not an uncommon situation here where there will be, you know, what effectively are tenants of the homeowner living at the property when it goes to foreclosure. And so analytically, of course, they have a different status. And I do give brief refreshers when I do a show involving unlawful detainers. And the reason I do that is because this is not only a complex area of law. It has its own language. It has its own legal standards. They really are separate and apart in some ways from what goes on even in the regular foreclosure environment, pre-auction, let's say. And one of the, the aspects of that that I talk about that I think it's important to relate here so listeners will really know how the legal posture of these cases uh, comes to turn out the way it does. You are a holdover tenant the, the day as of the time of the sale. In other words, one minute you're a homeowner, even if you're in default, whether that default is valid, even if you haven't paid your mortgage in a long time, and of course, in many cases, that's quite justified. Nevertheless, as of the time of sale, whether you are behind in your payments or not, if the sale goes forward ostensibly because you are behind in your payments, then what happens legally in California is that you become a holdover tenant. Well, what does that mean? Well, a holdover tenant anywhere is a tenant who no longer has the legal right to be in the tenancy. So if you just take a garden variety unlawful detainer situation, and again, the, these principles apply anywhere. They would apply in a judicial foreclosure state. And what are those principles? Well, the way an unlawful detainer case works anywhere is there's a landlord. Usually it's, it's a real landlord, not, not a theoretical one as here. And that landlord is upset because the tenant who lives there isn't paying. Well, tenant doesn't have a legal basis for not paying. And to some extent, even if there is a legal basis, meaning let's say there's mold, let's say there's mildew, let's say, there's a constant problem with water coming through the ceiling, any number of things. If the tenant doesn't pay their rent, they are said to be holding over and going beyond the tenancy because the tenancy is always going to require them to pay their rent. Of course, if they have a legal justifiable reason for not paying their rent, uh, that often will end up in court. So, a holdover tenant really is a tenant who has a lease, who's required to pay their rent. They're not paying their rent. Well, the reason that a foreclosed borrower becomes a holdover tenant on the day of the sale is because, in essence, they don't have a valid tenancy with the, uh, the new owner. Of course they don't, because they were never a renter in the property. Uh, 
I'm not talking about some weird procedural history where maybe they were three years before that time. We're just saying that if you're a homeowner, you're not renting the property. And so you don't have a landlord. You have, uh, if you didn't pay cash, somebody you borrowed money from, and you have a loan of some kind outstanding, uh, as Neil and I talk about all the time, that such a loan is actually genuinely securitized and that they're actual nameable parties who can show they have a proper providence for the loan. No, that doesn't exist in a huge number, and I would say almost invariably uh, in these cases. So what you have is you've got a landlord who is not really your landlord. It's the new owner. You're a holdover tenant, but you're not really a tenant. So in California, you're only entitled to a three-day notice. You're not entitled to a 30-day notice to evict you. You're not entitled to a 60 or a 90 days. If you've got tenants yourself, then they can be entitled to a 30 or 60 or 90-day notice, variously, depending on a number of factors. Here, one reason this Preciado case was such a mess is because there were a bunch of tenants there. There was the former owner. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon ended up with two separate cases ostensibly addressing the homeowner in one and then some of the other tenants in another. Rightfully, they all essentially got consolidated into this one appeal. And the appeal seems to be coming out with a holding that's saying, look, there's a service issue here, and it's because of a service issue that we're holding as we do. Yet when you look at the latter part of the opinion, including the actual holding, it also is is what seems to be clearly saying that because Recon Trust was never validly substituted, meaning there's no proper substitution of trustee. In this case, uh, I believe in terms of the lower court record and the, the record referenced in the appeal, there, there was never a substitution of recon trust into the underlying sales scheme. So, again, remember, in California, you can only bring a property to sale when it's compliant with Civil Code 2924. In order for that to happen, you have to have done certain bona fides as the, as, as, as the institutional party bringing the property to sale. You have to show duly perfected title. You also, more recently in the last few years, including back in this case, show that the Homeowner Bill of Rights was complied with. Uh, nevertheless, bottom line, if you can't show duly perfected title, then the sale potentially can be reversed. And the sale uh, legally is void Showing that or even getting that uh, kind of status declared in some capacity, as in this case, does not mean you can just go into court and enforce a declaratory judgment against the institutional party here at Bank of New York Mellon. It does mean that, hypothetically, if they try to go back into unlawful detainer court, they shouldn't be able to prevail. It would be interesting to know, and this is something – Maybe one of our resourceful listeners will look it up wherever and however to find out what actually happened in this case with the property ultimately. Was there a settlement afterward? Was there another unlawful chainer case? 
six months or a year later where they ended up prevailing, notwithstanding this judgment, notwithstanding uh, the reversal and the remand, uh, nevertheless. Um, I shouldn't say that the, the, the appellate court resulted in a judgment. The, the, the appellate court, both these decisions, the one I'm discussing now, Preciado, and the one I will be discussing momentarily, McLeitus, both of these decisions resulted in a, uh, a reversal and a remand. However, that doesn't mean that back at the lower court level, the, the institutional plaintiffs just gave up and just went home and never came back to try to, uh, to get their pound of flesh, in this case, the property. So that remains to be seen what happens to these cases procedurally and substantively over time. I would be very interested to know that. Uh, in the McLeitis case, it's, it's quite similar in terms of results. It's cleaner and, and kind of in, invokes a simpler analysis because the procedural record and the procedural facts are simpler at the lower court level. Um, what's interesting is that both cases <clears throat> cite three-day notice service issue as a fundamental problem in the cases. In the Preciado case, the service issue had more to do with whether the given server was considered a kind of authorized uh, process server, meaning they do that for a living, and whether and how this process server that was actually used for the three-day notice met that standard and whether they would have needed to be present at the unlawful detainer case to testify to their bona fides. And so that's part of the mess of the Preciado case, but the Preciado case, as I was indicating earlier, still seem to find at the end of the day and still seem to hold at the end of the day that the failure to have recon trust properly substituted meant that the trustee never brought the property to sale property properly. And this is a big issue in McLeitus. In other words, under 2924, since the whole kind of uh, abbreviated foreclosure process. It is the world of non-judicial foreclosures. Since it's abbreviated and since the judicial foreclosure required in places like New York and Florida is, is essentially off the table and not required, there are supposed to be real bona fides still to the process so that borrowers just don't get railroaded. And what happened here, Preciado, Recon Trust was found never to have substituted in properly or substituted in at all, arguably. As a result, the, there was never a trustee to bring the, the sale properly. Arguably, the, the, the sale, well, not arguably, it is void. Arguably, there could be an enforcement action to simply reverse the sale. Now, it's similar in McLeitus in that here, because, again, chain of title defects, uh, similar types of uh, analytical 
title record defects cause this uh, lawsuit to be, uh, well, they cause the lower opinion finding for, in this case, 909 Monserrati Avenue Trust. They were the UD plaintiffs, and the defendant was a former individual homeowner. Now, one thing to keep in mind in all UD cases is, and this is another point I've, I've made on this show in respect of UD cases, I've also pointed out this analysis applies to bankruptcy cases. What analysis is this? When you go into UD court as a plaintiff, when you go into bankruptcy court as a movement to, let's say, have the automatic stay lifted so you can foreclose on a given property, you must show duly perfected title. Well, how do you do that? Part of the way you do that is have a clean chain of title and you you proceed to the uh, foreclosure sale on that basis. Or in the case of, of the bankruptcy situation, you attempt to lift the stay so you can take the property to sale with the argument that, yes, I'm the real title holder here. I plaintiff, the institutional trust, and the title holder. So many times when there's a servicer and there invariably is a servicer in California, I'm not saying it exists in literally every case like this, but it's, it would almost be accurate to say, yes, it exists in all cases. So there's a servicer, there's the institutionalized trust. Now, the servicer may or may not be described as the, quote, owner and the controller of the note and the associated deed of trust. Uh, oftentimes, though, the institutional trust still is the nominal owner, still is the nominal purported uh, controller of the note and deed of trust. When that's the case, that's the party that must bring the UD action if they want to evict a former uh, owner who has had their property go to sale. That's the case if they want to go into bankruptcy court and have the stay lifted in order to bring a property to sale. So you see all these permutations and you see the institutional plaintiffs here time and time again. It's the Bank of New York Mellons and the other institutional trusts that we have uh, seen and grown weary of uh, as we try to litigate in these, these, these uh, cases and the difficult environment that is foreclosure in California and elsewhere. So to give some more highlights on McLeitis, the court, the appellate court, rightly found that the, the, the lower court got it wrong when it essentially conflated the standard for a perfected sale with the standard for a perfected title. And frankly, I'm not saying the appellate court gets its own analysis wrong here. It is a complicated distinction, and these are somewhat complex topics. But by definition, if the title is not valid and duly perfected, then the underlying sale on which, well, the underlying sale, which ultimately had to be based on duly perfected title, then that's not valid either. 
for purposes of the statute, for purposes of bringing a unlawful detainer plaintiff's action post-sale, the relevant California Civil Procedure, CCP 1161A, very much focuses on duly perfected uh, title ne being needed ultimately by the UD plaintiff to prevail in court. It also indicates a duly perfected sale of the property, which occasions the unlawful tenor case, of course, that that sale is perfected on the recording of a trustee's deed upon sale. Now, one thing that you should keep in mind is that I've been in unlawful detainer cases on behalf of borrowers where the judge is even finessing on behalf of the UD plaintiff the need to bring in a trustee's deed upon sale. I mean, this is disturbing stuff. 1161A makes it absolutely crystal clear that that's a requirement. A kind of companion issue is whether the trustee's deed upon sale was recorded within 15 days of the sale. That is a paper requirement of 1161A. And yet, uh, I and my comrades, so to speak, on, on our side of the fence fighting these foreclosure cases, we often see cases where the trustee's deed is recorded weeks after, not 15 days after. And yet again, judges will routinely sign off on such deficiencies. Here, the court, the appellate court is saying, look, the trustee's deed upon sale having been recorded within the 15-day time frame, yes, the sale was, was perfected. However, they then rightly say, the ability to go into UD court and go against the defendant requires not just a duly perfected sale, it requires duly perfected title. Of course, as I say, that's kind of a leading and finessing the issue that you can't even get a duly perfected sale without duly perfected title. Nevertheless, putting that issue aside for a moment, it's it's useful to those on our side to take away from this case. That's the uh, Maserati. That's the McLeitis case. What one should take away from this case for our side, apart from anything else, is that duly perfected title is required to go into UD court. And one way of challenging that, of course, is chain of title is showing either improper or ineffective or in some cases not existent substitutions of trustee that are required. One must remember that under the statutory scheme in uh, California Civil Code 2924, it is required partly because it's a kind of summary proceeding and you don't get the rights of a judicial foreclosure. It is required that you substitute separate parties. So in essence, even though those parties are coordinating, one might uh, uncharitably use the term colluding to uh, describe such coordination nominally and in, and in legal fact, they're often uh, separate legal entities uh, that they sometimes share certain bona fides or I've even seen offices as another matter for discussion at another show. As for today, 
this requirement of duly perfected title is essential chain of title arguments when properly made with the evidence to demonstrate and a sympathetic judge. Granted, those are a lot of qualifications. When that all happens, then you can stop these unlawful detainer uh, cases from moving forward, and you can win an unlawful detainer case. It is doable. I've laid out the path, I believe, for doing so consistent with these two opinions. Of course, there's a lot more work to be done on the ground legally and otherwise for those uh, taking this on, but do refer to these opinions. They're both strong opinions. McLeitis was absolutely published, and McLeitis, one of the reasons I think this case won is because it was brought by the legal society of San Diego rather than an individual foreclosure attorney. Need I say more? All right, everyone, Neil will be back next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.